what's going on guys? Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of the Muzzle Blast podcast. My name's Logan, I run all the West Desert Shooter stuff, and now the Muzzle Blast podcast. So for episode one, I sit down and have a great conversation with Kurt from Vaughn Precision. We get into all things related to firearms, so we're talking about rifles, pistols, long-range shooting, hunting, and then into reloading as well. We even get into reloading where I ask him what he thinks makes the biggest difference in reloading. So it's definitely worth checking out. Be sure to listen to the entire thing. Let me know what you think by the end of it. I greatly appreciate you tuning in. And without further ado, let's get into Kurt Vaughn with Vaughn Precision on the first episode of the Muzzle Blast podcast. Well, hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to the first episode of the Muzzle Blast podcast. I've got the opportunity to speak with Kurt from Vaughn Precision. So let's cruise over to here and let's see what Kurt's been up to. Kurt, how's it going, dude? Not too bad. How you been? Oh, not too bad. I haven't been able to get out to the range a whole lot lately. It's cold and snowy where I'm at, unfortunately. The desert's in a blanket of snow and it just keeps building up. So uh, you had the opportunity to get out and shoot much lately? Not as much as I'd like. No, <clears throat> no, just uh, too too much uh, too much going on here with just gun work and gotcha. Uh, gotcha. Went out you know, a couple weeks ago, but uh, not not as much as I'd normally get out. Gotcha. So, um, give us a little bit of an introduction introduction as to uh, kind of what you do. You you do a lot of stuff over there. You get into quite a few things. It's pretty awesome. So, well, we do. Just average, you know, gunsmith work. Uh, you know, somebody broke a bolt off type stuff, or needs a scope mount. But we also do a lot of uh, precision rifle builds right from scratch with you know custom actions or turing up actions that are you know factory actions, Remingtons, whatever. Um, do a lot of reloading. Do a lot of reloading classes, and well, do a lot of YouTube. So, yeah. amongst many many other things. Yeah, right on. So actually, uh, that's kind of where we met. We've started BSing back and forth on YouTube uh, back when I started trying out to uh, get those 95 grains of shoot in my rifle. And uh, you're one of the first channels to give me a shout out, so I greatly appreciate that. And it seems sure. like our channel's been growing at just about the same pace ever since. Um, but yeah, even back then, you you knew what you were doing with those with reloading, and you've helped me out a ton as we went, so I greatly appreciate that. Yeah, you bet. So I guess we'll start off the... Uh, I'm going to set up kind of a traditional format for this show. Um, we're going to start out with our cold bore questions, kind of get things rolling along. Um, so one of my first cold bore questions for you is, uh, what kind of music do you listen to? Oh, I should have got a transcript. <laughs> <laughs> um, I listen to everything. Uh, I'll listen to uh, primarily kind of you know rock and roll genre, uh, gotcha. but I, I listen to a lot of alternative. I listen to some country real country, like old school country, like <laughs> Willie Nelson type stuff. Okay. Okay. You know, I'll listen to a little bit of rap, not a lot. There's uh, you know, there's a few things I like, but pretty much everything. I'm not, uh, not really biased one way or the other on that. Right on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I kind of wanted to hit you off guard with those questions. Just kind of be like, what, what the hell are we talking here? But I also want to give uh, the people who are listening here an idea of who we're talking to. So uh, the next one I've got going on, and I'm not sure if this will actually land or not. Um, what are some of your favorite podcasts you listen to? Joe Rogan. Okay, Joe Rogan. I, see, I'm not sure if you listen to a bunch of podcasts. So Yeah, I listen to podcasts uh, almost every day. Okay. Uh, you know, the, the Meat Eater podcast, uh, Joe Rogan podcast. 
and um, Sam Harris. Uh, try to you know try to find those seek those people out that are uh, well versed in certain areas or very very open minded because it re- I think it creates a good conversation. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the things I like about the Joe Rogan podcast as well is uh, he's able to approach things with a level head. Um, I I really like that about him. Uh, yeah, I agree with the Meat Eater podcast. I listen to that every week as it comes out. At my work, I'm only able to listen to things. I can't watch videos anymore, so uh, I get into quite a few podcasts as well. And those are some of the ones I listen to, so that's awesome. And uh, I guess finally, we'll go into my last question for you, which is, uh, have you ever been in a fist fight? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> right on. You can yeah, elaborate, or are you just going to leave it as, as that? Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's uh, I've won some, I've lost some. <laughs> Uh, the, the the one I lost is the fight I picked, oh, and yeah. I was uh, uh, <laughs> I was graciously uh, put in my place. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I just I thought that'd be a funny question to ask you. So I took a pretty good beating on that one, actually. I deserved every punch. That's too bad. Um, right on, man. So let's get into a little bit of your gunsmithing stuff. Uh, so you've produced videos and DVDs on your gunsmithing uh, as well, which I've had the opportunity to watch, and I think they're really awesome. So I think you do a great job there. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So uh, what was one of the first rifles that you put together as a gunsmith, whether you were learning or on your own? Um, so I've done a lot of modifications, you know, but I would say the first gun that I actually – built with, you know, rebarreling it, chambering it, uh, you know, bedding, all that kind of stuff was, was on a Savage, um, Savage model 12 FE. That was, uh, you know, of course I've, I've purchased barrels in the past where, you know, they're already pre-threaded, pre-chambered, all that you screw them on. Uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily consider that, uh, building a rifle. I mean, when I, when I say building a rifle, it's basically taking, you know, chambering it, contouring the barrel, doing all the work, crowning the muzzle. So yeah, um, Model 12 FE was the first one. And I've done, you know, uh, Winchesters now, Remingtons. Um, I, I mean, I've done quite, quite a few, actually. In fact, I've got one right now. It's, uh, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this name up, but I, I believe it's a RPV. It's an English rifle. Uh, it's okay. a crazy looking rifle, but it's... Uh, it's a, uh, it, there's only one in seven ever made. Whoa, that's pretty wild. Yeah, I haven't started the, the project yet. Um, we're going to rebarrel it to a 6.5 by 55 Swede and okay. uh, 31 inch bull barrel. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a monster of a gun. Um, but I'm, like it. no, it's one of those things too where it's only one of seven ever made. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, no pressure. <laughs> you know, no pressure. You know, if you, if you screw this one up, man. Uh, what do you do? Yeah. So real quick, uh, on that first rifle you did, what was it originally chambered in? And then after you swapped it and put it in your chamber in it, what did you uh, change it to? Actually, it went from a 308 to a 243. Okay. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of the 243, like I mentioned earlier. That's what uh, you were helping me out with. So, uh, yeah. so what is it about the 243 versus, say, a more traditional, like a 308 or something? What is it about the 243 you really like? Uh, a few things, really. Um, you know, the, the components, of course, are readily available. Um, 
they're inherently accurate uh, right out of the box. Um, you know, they're cheap to reload. They are very low recoil. Uh, you get really good ballistics out of them. You know, they, I wouldn't hesitate uh, for a second to take a two, 300-yard shot on a deer with it. Um, I would shoot an elk with it. Uh, but, of course, you have to be real careful about your distance on that. But, yeah. you know, if you were 200 yards or less, I wouldn't hesitate for a second to take take an elk. I've seen a lot of elk actually taken uh, with a 243 up here in Washington. Gotcha. Yeah, um, I actually had a 243 uh, Tika, which is one of the first rifles. So I, I understand what you're saying about the affordability of reloading it, its inherent accuracy. And uh, the low recoil really is a big one for me. I went from a 300 Win Mag to a 243, and with the correct bullet selection, you are able to mimic the trajectory of a 300 Win Mag. You're just going to have a little less energy on target. Right, right. And, you know, the other, the other benefit, I think, to a 243 is anytime you're introducing a new shooter um, to shooting, you, you've, got, you've got that low recoil. And so, you know, <clears throat> whether you're men or women or children, um, but, but more so probably women and children who are maybe not, maybe they don't have the, the shooting experience or maybe they've just never shot. And so th there's kind of a misconception out there that, you know, if you're going to pull the trigger, you're going to get this huge recoil. But it's not necessarily the case uh, amongst many cartridges, but especially the 243, it's a very, very mild cartridge. It's a great cartridge, I think, to start uh, a new shooter out with. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree with that. That's, I think it's a great choice to uh, take someone out who hasn't shot a whole lot before with one. And, you know, the other thing, too, is when when you're, if you're introducing a new shooter to, to you know, take them out to the range and you start shooting, it's, uh, there's a sense of pride when you can take a brand new shooter with an inherently accurate cartridge and, you know, they start drilling a bullseye uh, versus other cars. And I'm not saying other ones are inaccurate, but you, you kind of take away the flinch factor uh, for the reduced recoil. And so I think it just, it, it helps them uh, gain a little bit of confidence. And, and that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to get them developing a flinch or anything like that. Uh, I, I think nowadays, if I were to uh, start helping someone learn how to shoot, I get into like a a 22, obviously, maybe then bump them up to an AR, which is a 223. Um, those are nice and low recoil. I think that's why a lot of people get into the ARs, just because they're fun to shoot. And then once you get into like a bolt action, more of a serious rifle cartridge, I'd probably steer them towards the 243. Right. So with the with the current craze right now going to 6.5 Creedmoor, uh, what do you think of the 6.5 Creedmoor? Well, I've built several for myself <laughs> uh, you know when they first uh were developed in uh 2008 i was not um i wasn't ready to jump on the bandwagon uh there there was not in in 2008 we didn't have the selection of bullets that we do now we didn't have the selection of cases that we do now with lar large rifle versus small rifle primer pockets um it, the idea behind the, the creedmoor was a good idea with the with the with the heavier shoulder on it less uh case stretch, things like that. But as time went on and, and all the companies that are building these bullets are, you know, looking at getting them, you know, the BCs are just incredibly high on them. They arrive on target with a, with a fair amount of energy. They're an extremely universal uh, cartridge. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of them. 
uh, now. But yeah, I, I've built myself several. Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that really sets the six five Creed more apart from most of the other cartridges, and what really gave it a leg up, was its uh, factory twist rate of one to eight. So you're able to stabilize those high BC bullets. Like not many two forty threes had a higher twist rate than one to ten when I was looking to buy one. I mean, you might find a one to nine, but that's pretty hard to find. And I think it really limits that cartridge. Whereas if they were if it was available in a one to eight. Um, you'd be able to shoot the 108 grain bullets, which now with a six millimeter Creedmoor, they are building that with one to eight twists, and I think that's what gives it the. Uh, I think that's what gives it an advantage against the 243. Yep. So, um, have you ever gone hunting with your 65 Creedmoor, and how did that turn out? So I, uh, the first Creedmoor I built myself, uh, which I, I know you've seen it on YouTube, but that's the that's the one with the blue Boyd stock. Okay. And that, uh, I didn't shoot a big deer this year. I shot a spike, but I, I shot, I shot my deer this year with that Creedmoor and, uh, performed I mean, flawlessly. It was great. Yeah. Right on. Um, so you're up in the Pacific Northwest of, uh, of America. So what kind of hunting do you get into up there? Uh, well, we're, we're in a, of course, a mountainous area. Uh, the, the weather is not extreme. Uh, to one side or the other, you know, we, we usually hit a hundred for a couple weeks a year and then we're down typically in the thirties and forties through the winter time. I'm not saying we don't get a cold snap, but you know, a lot of, a lot of mountainous areas. So we've got, uh, we've got a huge amount of, of different things to hunt deer, elk. Um, you know, we've got ducks, grouse, um, coyotes, bobcats, turkeys, not so many turkeys on the west side. I'm on the west side of the mountains, but okay. the east side is flooded with turkeys. So we've, we've got a we've got a lot of stuff, a lot of things to choose from up here. Uh, not to mention all the fishing. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, we've talked about going fishing out on the ocean. I think you're crazy for going out there in a kayak and getting dragged around by big old fish out there. <laughs> um, I did see your video this year of uh, your son's first turkey hunt, and he was able to be successful in that. That was really awesome. Uh, how does how does that make you feel uh, being able to take them out there and let them harvest a turkey? Um, well, uh, good, except I didn't get one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's it, it was, a, it was a great, uh, great experience. We, when I was on a fire this year, uh, I met a, a gentleman that had 345 acres and, uh, he gave us permission to come on it and it's loaded with turkeys. So, um, not being a big turkey hunter myself, I was kind of new to the game, learned a lot. Um, but you know, the focus was, was, was to get him his turkey. And if he got one, then the rest of us, uh, the wife and I would get ours, but he shot his on the last, uh, on our last day of the trip there. So, uh, but you know, it's still, it was, it was a fantastic, uh, hunt. We had a great time. Um, the, the owner of the property is just a really good guy. And, uh, and uh, we, we're going to go back and do it again. We kind of have a standing, uh, invitation to come back and hunt uh, turkeys anytime we'd like when, when the seasons are available. Yeah, that's awesome, man. And uh, one of my favorite things about that is when you made the video and when you taste the turkey for the first time and you're just blown away by how good it is, it's it's hilarious because he tries it first and then you get up there and try it out. Uh, I highly suggest anyone to watch that. It makes me laugh every time I watch it. Yeah, it, you know, I've, I've heard, I've never had wild turkey until this year and I've heard so many things about from people that hunt them and, or don't hunt them and they say they're, you know, oh, they're terrible, you can no matter whether you're brining them or smoking them, they're just gross. And so I was a little bit, you know, 
I'm going out, man. I'm going to put this in my mouth. It's going to be gross. I, I'm going to have to be honest about it. And uh, we ate that thing, and it is 10 times better than any butterball you buy at the grocery store. Yeah, that's really interesting because I've heard the same thing, how some of them are just – I know I've heard there's a big taste difference. Uh, I don't know if I heard necessarily if it was good or bad versus store-bought, but I knew that they were supposed to taste quite a bit different than what you get at the store. Well, the, the meat in them is it's uh, slightly darker, and so they're you know they're they're a wild bird. They're not they're not your butterball, but um, they seem to have a little bit more, I think, fat content inside the meat. They're they're extremely juicy. Uh, there's no gamey flavor either. I didn't get any gamey flavor at all. It was just a really good uh, piece of meat. I, I I I honestly I can't wait to get back and do it again. It was great. Yeah, that looked awesome and. Something I want to touch back on real quick is uh, you mentioned on that hunt that your wife went with you. Um, did you get her into rifle shooting? Because a few, I think it's been a few years now, uh, we did that six egg challenge where you set up uh, little chicken eggs at 300 yards and then you try and shoot them with a rifle. And she did a really awesome job, uh, regardless that she's a woman or not. I mean, she was she was out shooting quite a few gun channels on YouTube. It was really impressive. She, uh, there are days she outshoots me, <laughs> but, um, she had a pistol. Uh, she used to shoot a, a, uh, Beretta M9 okay. and she was pretty new to shooting period when we met. And then as, as this whole thing kind of grew into what it is today, yeah, we pretty much got her into, I shouldn't say I got her into shooting, but I, I certainly diversified what she shoots and how she shoots. Okay. That's cool. Well, yeah, I think she does a great job, and obviously with all the projects you've got going on that are gun-related, she's got to be pretty supportive of that, and I think that's really awesome of her to do that. Yeah, she's, she's definitely very supportive. You know, she helps with, uh, you know, websites, uh, the website maintaining it. Um, she helps with, of course, a lot of the paperwork. As we get projects in, get them done, um, you know, the projects come in from all over the country, and so... You know, she'll run, get everything mailed. She set up all the FFL information with the uh, local UPS. So, yeah, she definitely plays a big part of the whole thing. Yeah, that's awesome. So, big shout out to her for helping you out with all the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I guess we'll just get into kind of a hypothetical question here. If you could build a rifle for any particular task, no budget limit, and you could have, even if you want one of those rifles where there's only seven available in the world, uh, what's what's one of your like dream rifles that you'd just love to have sitting in the safe? And well, I built it for extreme long range stuff, or just hunting, or whatever you want. So I don't get into the. I'm, I'm not big into the extreme long range. Um, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly content just going out to a thousand yards or a mile. Um, yeah, my. Yeah, that's a boy. That's a really tough question, man. Um, <laughs> it is because there there are so many variables, right? Uh, for my style of shooting, what I do, um, the six five gets me there for what I'm doing. Um, yeah. You know, the, the chassis I've got, the barrel I've got, the action I've got um, is is kind of what. Well, that this was kind of the dream rifle that I that I wanted to put together. Now, of course, I I suppose I could have bought a you know a bat action or panda action and done all kinds of the crazy stuff, but, but what we put together, uh, because it was that father son project, we built basically identical rifles, uh, other than a few minor things. Uh, but, but that's, that rifle will get me 
well past a thousand. Um, it's an excellent hunting rifle. It's uh, fairly lightweight. It's I haven't actually weighed it. I'm guessing it's going to come in, in around that nine pound range, which for a lot of hunters is a little bit, you know, a little bit heavier than that they'd like. But um, I don't mind it. In fact, it's a good exercise. <laughs> so. <laughs> um. Before we skip past that too much, uh, you want to get back on that father-son project rifle you guys have got going on? Because that's something really cool that you started this year. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people would like to hear about that. Yeah, so um, my boy, is he's getting a little bit more in, involved with uh, you know what I do out here in the shop. Um, he, re he reloads with me. We've got the big lathe set up in the mill, and, and he's kind of wanting to learn how to do some of that stuff. So he, he thought, you know maybe this is a good opportunity to, to let him build his own stuff. And, you know, of course with me standing right over his shoulder, uh, teaching him how to do it. But we were able to, uh, put together these rifles. We reached out to quite a few, uh, companies that, the uh, you know, they gave us a pretty nice discount, um, you know, to, to help support the project. And so it, it was, uh, it was a really good, really good thing. It was really fun. He learned a lot. I learned some too. Yeah. Patience mainly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt there. Um, and and I think it's cool that he does show interest in that because, like, I think there's a real possibility uh, if some fathers will try and push things on their kids and it kind of pushes them away from it. But the fact that he wants to get out in the shop with you, I think that really speaks volumes to uh, what you do there. I think that's really cool that he's he wants to get out and be involved with uh, what you're doing. But, I mean, I don't know many kids who wouldn't want to build their own rifle. <laughs> Yeah, there was a while there. I didn't. I didn't know if he was going to really get into it or not. You know, he he was kind of he loved shooting twenty two, but he was a little bit hesitant to get in, into anything bigger. And I, at one point, I just had to back off and go, okay, you know, you're just going to have to let me know when you're ready, if you're ever ready. And I was really crossing my fingers on that. And then where it all actually took a turn was when we were hunting or we weren't actually hunting. We were camping this year over uh, potholes reservoir mm -hmm. and we found a rattlesnake. Well, or the rattlesnake found me. <laughs> <laughs> and <clears throat> so I, I, I drawn my pistol and shot it. Um, and we, we've got, actually we've got that here at the house now. And as soon as, as soon as we did, as soon as I did that, it was just like some kind of a switch went off in him. And he's like, Dad, we, we got to come back and do this again. We got we to gotta come hunt these things. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm all about hunting snakes, but if we're going to hunt them, we're going to eat them. I just happened to shoot that one because he was within striking distance and I probably shouldn't move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, um, so, you know, since then we, we bought some uh, snake gators and a, and a walking, walking poles and stuff. So we, you know, we wouldn't have to shoot one. But, uh, but yeah, that's kind of how, how it evolved and i'm not sure what that switch was but as soon as the gun went off and the snake was dead and we were safe it was like i got dad i gotta do this i'm like all right let's uh let's do this yeah that's that's really interesting that something like that would kind of switch it for him but uh a rattlesnake is actually one of the very few animals that i've actually uh, uh killed we were up camping at bear lake in utah idaho that lake is right on the border and uh we had i family members running around there little two and three year old uh cousins uh just little girls running between the campgrounds and between the campgrounds there's sagebrush and stuff and there was a rattlesnake that had decided to make its home there so it's just unsafe to have little kids running around 
and uh, so we we threw water on it. If you ever want to make a rattlesnake rattle, throw water on it. They hate that, and uh, and so we were able to get it out in the open, and I ended up uh, killing it with an axe, and then we took the skin from the rattlesnake and. I don't know if people know this or not, but when you cut one's head off, that thing will slither around for like another 10 or 12 hours. It's really weird uh, with no head on at all, and the head still works. So if you cut one's head off, don't touch it. Like pick it up with a stick, whatever. That thing can and still will bite you. But uh, we ended up wrapping my grandpa's cowboy hat in a uh, rattlesnake skin. And that, that's really cool. And every time I see that hat, it reminds me of that, and I think it's awesome. You know, the, the rattlesnake head can continue to bite for up to 24 hours after it's been severed, too. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. I, I, I was sitting there poking it with a stick, and uh, the whole the jaws on that thing opened back up and were ready to bite onto it. And it, and I cut it right. You could see where, like, the venom glands were in the back of the head. So there's, it was right at the back of the skull this thing was cut off, and it still worked. The yeah. snakes are the devil, man. I don't like those things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, I, shot, I shot that snake with a 9mm uh, uh, Glock 19 with a uh, snake shot. That's, um, that's a really cool option to go for snake hunting. <laughs> it, it is. It, it works. It works good. And so uh, I bought some bird shot. Uh, uh, my boy's got a 22, a Ruger SR-22. And so I bought some 22 bird shot for his. And then since then, I bought, uh, he now owns a Glock uh, 26. So when we go out shooting, he's, he's allowed to take that with him, and we've got the bird shot for that. So that, that works pretty good. And I, I've got three snakes now. Uh, I killed two snakes when I was up in OMAC bear hunting, um, and I, I actually hired a guide. We were up there, and I asked him, I'm like, you know, hey, you ever, you ever come across snakes up here? He's been, I've been guiding for 20 years. I haven't come across a snake up here, you know, in, in that amount of time. And literally, I don't think we took 20 more steps, and there was a snake and it just about bit the, the kind of the middle guy. I was behind him. I had two guides in front of me and it just about gets the middle guy. And so I was going to, I was going to shoot it. And he's like, no, we're too close to the bear area. I'm like, all right. So we just, uh, we just grabbed a stick and <laughs> whipped the ever loving shit out of it <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, went up, did our bear hunt, uh, came back down, saw some bears. They, they all had cubs came back down and, and I, we just carried it out of the woods with a stick and uh, I get back to the trailer. The wife was wife uh, and the boy were in the trailer and she's like, you're not bringing that thing in here. Are you? I'm like, yeah, we're going to put it in the freezer. It'll be fine. <laughs> so I, I killed two probably within 20 yards uh, of each other. We went back in the same area the next day and uh, found the second snake. We weren't hunting for him, but, uh, hmm. and so they're actually, I, I skinned them. Uh, if you take 50, 50 mix of denatured alcohol, and, um, oh, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a blank here. Uh, glycerin, denatured alcohol and glycerin. And you, you skin the snake and you just put that snake skin in a jar for three days. And then you uh, take it out, kind of pat it dry and put it on a board and just pin that, uh, pin that hide out on the board for about a week. And uh, that, it's basically tanning that hide. And okay. it, uh, it works great. Yeah, I put, them in a shadow, I put both those skins in a shadow box or hang it on the wall. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so let's let's talk about that bear hunting a little bit. Uh, I don't think it's, I don't think bear hunting is as popular for a lot of people. I don't think, I think there's a lot of people that don't realize that bear hunting is a lot like, I mean, you you're able to eat the bear afterwards. I don't think a lot of people realize you can do that. Um, yeah. Now I know that some bears can taste terrible and some bears can taste pretty pretty good, according to the Meat Eater podcast we both listen to. 
uh, I think a lot of it has to deal with what they're eating. Now, with you being close to the water source, obviously they have access to eat like rotten fish. Um, so were you able to harvest a bear? And if you were, how did that thing taste? So, um, so as much as it angers me to say this, I've never killed one. Oh, okay. I didn't realize <laughs> that. <laughs> and I've never got a bear. I, and I go for them every year. Uh, part of the problem is, is, you know, if, if I run on wildfire all summer long when the, when the bear season's open, I give up a lot of time uh, to hunt them. Now, where I hunt them, I'm, I'm hunting them up in the mountains, so they're nowhere near uh, they're nowhere near water other than just little creeks and streams. Um, if you shoot them in, well, up here it opens August 1st, and it runs through November 15th currently. So if, if I shoot one in, in that... Uh, August to September time frame, the berries are out. They're they're eating berries. Uh, I've got a lot of friends that have that have harvested bear, and they say when they open them up, it smells like a blackberry pie. Hmm. And now, once the berries are gone, and you know the salmon start running the streams, things like that, or if you're shooting a coastal bear actually down on the ocean, uh, which there's a lot of them on the coast, you're you're going to get bears that are eating. You know, they'll eat crab and clams and you know, dead fish and all kinds of stuff. And from, from, and I've tasted some that have been harvested in different, different areas. And there's a huge difference in what they taste like. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, obviously where I'm at in Utah, there's not a huge access to a bunch of water stuff where they're eating a bunch of dead fish. I think typically they get up into the mountains and they're eating like acorns and wild berries, like you're talking about, but, uh, bear's something I'm definitely interested in hunting. It's one of the few animals that I'm hunting, that I'm interested in hunting. Uh, so are there any kind of like animals left of, that you would like to go after that you haven't had the opportunity to go after yet? Um, I think I'll get back into elk hunting. Um, I've never harvested an elk. So, you know, I, I archery hunted for years and we'd go down to a, a hunt unit called Coweeman and it was a spiker cow only down there. For, our, for archery. So we'd get in there, get on a, on a nice big herd, and every elk that we could come across that was in shooting distance uh, happened to be a, a giant elk. And I'm like, oh, look at that giant monster beauty of an elk, you know, six, seven point elk. And you go, uh, all, the spoik, all the spikes and cows are out off behind it. And I'm like, you know, so I, I just never had the opportunity. But I think I'm going to start, uh, especially now since the sun's kind of getting into it, that we're, we're going to start going back after the elk, but probably do it with rifle, not archery. Yeah, the only time I've had the opportunity to go out and hunt for elk was a spike season here, and I was actually going after one of my 243, and the only elk we even got within a reasonable distance of was a six-point elk that came trucking through the woods. His tongue was hanging out the side of his head because he'd been running for a while, and he came running straight at us from like a 300-yard mark up to about 150 yards hit right and then just took off up into the woods and that was the only opportunity i ever had on an elk and use a beautiful bull but i only had a spike tag so it didn't do really good there yeah yeah they, there's a lot of elk up here uh you know we've a lot of friends shot them i haven't pursued them like other people uh I've, I've been more of a deer hunter and you know if i go out deer hunting uh, i've got black we have black tail deer up here Okay. They, they're, not, they're not like a they're not like a mule deer, and they're not like a whitetail. They're very elusive. They don't pattern the same. Uh, they're not in herds like you'll you know if you if you see a whitetail, they're usually 
there's usually quite a few around, but you can find a blacktail most often just by itself or maybe with one or two other deer, but you don't see them. Uh, they don't act the same. That's really interesting. Yeah. And then bear, bear is my number one goal. Uh, this year I'm going to put some, I'm, I'm, I'm not probably going to run on fire like I used to. I'm going to try to get up in the woods and really start tracking them. And I'll scout them about two months prior to hunting and uh, see if I can get out, get out there and get one down this year. I'm, I'm really looking to do that. That's my goal this year. Now, this may just be my inexperience, but is there are there any grizzly bears up in your area? And if there are, would you be interested in hunting grizzly versus black bear? So you cannot you cannot hunt grizzly in Washington. Um, okay. There are grizzlies in Washington. They're not close to me. They're up uh, near the Canadian border. They cross over. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're in Idaho and Montana. Anywhere up near the Canadian border, you're going to find some grizzlies. There, there's not a lot of them. Uh, we don't have a very big population at all. But uh, if I could hunt either one, no, I'm, I'm fine with just a little black bear. That's, uh, I'd be okay. perfectly happy with that. All right. Now, if you were to get a black bear, would you do like a bear rug or would you mount it or would you just keep the skull? Uh, and then are you going to try out, are you going to try it out eating? And how would you try eating it? Because I know you, uh, you get into cooking quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to do a rug. My, my wife has a, a spot on the wall picked out that she is refusing to hang anything else until the bear, until the bear comes in. Well, so, see more, more support from the wife. This is good stuff. <laughs> right. Right. The, um, yeah, I definitely, I would absolutely cook it needed. I, I try not to hunt anything that I'm not going to put in my face. Okay. Uh, right. I'm going to hunt it. I'm going to, I want to eat it, uh, to include rattlesnakes. Okay. But, that's awesome. Yeah. Now with bear, you do have to be uh, careful because bear can carry trichinosis mm-hmm. and it's a parasite. You've got to cook bear up to 160 degrees. Uh, so, you know, you're not going to take a bear steak, throw it on the grill and cook it medium rare. You can probably be pretty sorry about that. Yeah. So when it comes to cooking, um, you know, they make a great pot roast. Uh, you can do bear bacon. Uh, yeah, bear I've bacon. never heard of that. Yeah. So uh, bears are related to pigs, boars and sows. Well, I, I had no idea. I, <laughs> yeah, I had no <laughs> idea about that. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that till just a few years ago. And, and then as soon as somebody said it, I went, oh, man, how did I not know that? Um, but, yeah, they're, they're, they're part of the pig family. And so you, you can do hams. You can do uh, bear bacon, uh, and of course, stew meat, roasts, things like that. But whatever you do, you've got to make sure that, you, that you, it, you've got to get the temperature up there when you cook it, just, just in case it has trichinosis. And I don't know how prevalent that is in our state, but trichinosis is carried by pretty much any other animal that can eat uh, another animal. Oh, okay, uh, I gotcha. Yeah, they, they're not carried by a trichin- You won't find trichinosis in deer and elk and stuff because they don't. Uh, they're not out there eating other animals. Gotcha. So let's kind of switch gears here. Uh, let's get a little bit more into the reloading side of things, precision rifle uh, side of things as well. Um, so we'll start this off just a pretty simple question. What's, uh, what's one of the longest shots you've been able to take just on target shooting or maybe it's a game animal. I'm not sure. Uh, what's, what's one of your longest shots you've taken with a rifle? Uh, I've gone out past a mile on target. Okay. That's, uh, that's not a, an easy thing to do. On a 12 inch target out to a mile. I did that with a seven millimeter. That's, that's impressive shooting, man. That that was good, yeah. I mean, you know, the conditions were good too. So it's it's not all about just you know having precision ammo or a good rifle. It's uh, the conditions were there. To, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of wind. 
uh, it was pretty, pretty calm, calm day. So, um, that always helps. Gotcha. Um, was that a seven mag you're talking about? If, and then do you want to get into the load data a little bit on that? Like what bullet you're using, what velocity, if you remember? Uh, yeah, actually I do remember it was a uh, Remington. Originally it was a Remington 700, uh, Sendero Remington, Remington mag. And, uh, I had replaced the barrel on it right out of the factory. The barrel was bad from, from Remington and, uh, they, they refused to warranty it because I, because I changed the trigger. So I voided my warranty apparently. Um, so the load I was using, I believe I was using uh, Norma Brass uh, CCI 250 primer, 70 grains of Rotumbo powder, and 168 grain of uh, Burger VLD, I believe, was the load combination on that. And I'm running uh, in, in the 2900 range uh, feet per second. I don't gotcha. recall exact the exact number. I think it was like 2960 or something like that. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, that's a that's a stout long range shooting round for sure. Um, speaking of the burger bullets, what's uh, what's kind of your load development process on the burger bullets? Like, how do you figure out your jump? Where would you start if I handed you a new BLD for a new cartridge? Where would you start your overall length, and then what would you test from there for the jump test? Because for people who might not be familiar, burger BLDs have a, an O jive that are very very picky on their seating depth. Yeah, they, they can be very, very finicky. The, anytime I start loading with a burger bullet, um, I start with a, about a 10,000th jump to the rifling, to the lands. And what I would do is I would load five rounds, 10,000ths off, five rounds, 5,000ths off, five rounds touching, and five rounds, 5,000ths jammed in. Okay. And, uh, if that didn't work for some reason, I would go down to 20,000s, 30,000s, 40, 50, and de clear down to 60,000s jump, assuming that that I'm not seating the bullet too far into the case to you know to cause a, a, any kind of a pressure situation. Um, but you could also back your powder down just a little bit too if you needed to. So uh, that's what I would do. I found the vast majority of burger bullets that I've reloaded uh, typically like to be on the lands. Okay, just right, touching them? Just barely touching them. Um, I did have a rifle that wouldn't shoot them unless they were jammed by five thousandths, and that's actually fairly common. So when I do low development, typically what I do is I'll start uh, a different uh, charge weights, and I'll do five rounds of 40 grains, five rounds of 40, 40 and a half, whatever. Uh, if you're shooting a burger bullet, would you start with a jump test first and just pick a powder charge, or would you do the multiple powder charges and then get into seating depth. Cause that's, that's how I would do it. I would do multiple powder charges and then multiple seating depths with a, say a Barnes bullet or a Hornady bullet. I'm just curious. Yeah, so I, guess I, I, I guess we should back up and say, uh, I, what I would do is I would start with the powder first and, okay. and kind of figure out where that, where that, that nice note is, um, on my, on my, on my charge. So that I know I've, I've got a pretty good accurate node there. And then, then I would start with with uh, playing around with the depth of the bullet, and seeing what uh, you know, seeing what where that bullet likes to likes to lay. Okay, and I've read online on the Burger uh, website, they have a whole overall length jump test that they suggest to try out. I was just curious what your what your uh, process is there for that. Um, their their test is is actually pretty good, um, but just based on all the burgers I've loaded, knowing that 
I've never had one shoot that, that really liked to be off the lands. And so I don't typically play around with the, with the longer jumps because it's just never really panned out for me. Uh, okay. so I, I just start a lot closer to the lands and that way I'm not just out there, you know, throwing bullets down range, uh, needlessly. So have you found that with that VLD, cause I know they're a little bit tricky to do low development on versus maybe an ELD where they're a lot more jump tolerant. Um, once you find that, that, uh, perfect seating depth, do you think that they are more accurate typically than something that is less picky with seating depth? Like, is it, does it pay off to mess around with the burgers in the end? No, not, not in my opinion, not, not from the reloading I've done. Um, you know, they're, I'm not, I'm not knocking burger bullets. They're actually a very, they're an excellent bullet and you can get them to shoot really, really well, but they are inherently more finicky based on the design. So, you know, I've kind of switched everything over to Sierra bullets, the hollow point, uh, match King bullets. And I get, I've been getting excellent results with those. And, you know, you get your Hornady ELD X's and M's. Um, you, you get a little bit, you get a little, little bit more for less money and they're just, uh, they, they shoot really well. So for what that's worth. No, man, this is great stuff. And I know a lot of people have these questions, including myself. That's one of the reasons I'm asking you here. But, uh, yeah, I've seen the results you're getting with your Sierras, and that's nothing to scoff at. Those things are shooting awesome for you. In fact, I, I want to start getting into a little more Sierra here and there uh, and see how they compare to some of the other stuff I've ran. The, the nice thing I find about Sierras is uh, just based on the design, they're not finicky. Uh, you know, you, you can, I can change the seating depth on mine and, you know, really not see much of a difference on target. And... I've, I've found that to be fairly true with Hornady as well, but Hornady can be a little bit finicky, a little bit finicky, more so than the Sierras. But um, you know, if you get some burgers, uh, you're, you're gonna, you're probably gonna have to play around a little bit more than you would if, say, if you had some Sierras. Gotcha. Now, something I've noticed with Sierra is they are, they seem to be a little bit uh, conservative on their twist rate suggestions. So meaning like they have the 150 grain Sierra Match King and then you have the 147 grain Hornady ELD. Hornady suggests a one to eight and Sierra suggests a one to seven and a half. Now I know that there's a slight difference in the overall length there, but uh, it seems like like even for the 95 grain Sierra six millimeters, they wanted a one to nine twist. And I don't know if Berger had the one to nine twist suggestion on theirs. Um, but it just seems like consistently Sierra is more conservative with their twist rates. So they're, they're trying to keep them very stabilized versus maybe you could get away with a little bit less, which a lot of people online talk about like, Oh, I'm shooting this with less twist than they suggest. And they shoot just fine. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I think it, I think a lot of it really boils down to the harmonics in the barrel, uh, barrel length, speed, the bullet length. I mean, there's, of course there's a ton of variables in there. I was, Right now, I'm shooting 142 grain uh, hollow point boat tails from Sierra, and those are, uh, I got those to shoot lights out in a one and eight twist, a one and seven and a half twist, and now my current rifle has a one and seven twist. And I really didn't see much of a difference between any of them. They, they all shot very, very well under, under a quarter of an inch. Yeah. Um, on your, on your father-son builds you guys got going on, do both those rifles have the same twist rates? Yes. Yeah. Both of them have a, a shilling uh, barrel, 
match grade barrel. They're uh, one and seven twist, and the finished length on those was uh, 26 inches. Okay, very cool. So in reloading with talking with overall length and stuff like that, what do you think are some of the some things that make the biggest difference in accuracy downrange? Like, is it neck tension, bullet seating depth, powder charge? What are some oh, things that uh, you think make a bigger difference? <laughs> um, I, I would say, I would say, um, concentricity. Okay. That's a really interesting answer. Yeah. I, I've got, I've been able to, to get better results quicker just by using a good die and making sure that the concentricity is, you know, under about a thousandths, uh, total run out. So a half thou either side. And I've been able to get, get them to, to really dial in. Now, I think the, the next thing I would probably go after is the, uh, is the, uh, seating depth. Okay. So I actually don't have a tool to check concentricity. So maybe what you're saying here is that I need to get a tool to start checking my concentricity. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, you uh, definitely need those. You know, whether you get the RCPS Case Master or the Hornady Concentricity Tool or one from Sinclair or whatever, they're they're kind of an in, invaluable tool. You can really improve your shot group just by by making sure your uh, your concentricity is uh, preferably under two thousandths of an inch. Um, of course, the closer to zero, the better. Uh, yeah. That's gonna that's gonna make sure that when that bullet enters uh, into the rifling, it's 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 as close to zero, you know, right down that barrel as you can possibly get it. It's just going to enter the barrel just perfect. Yeah. And obviously you being a gunsmith, a machinist, you're, you're all about the tiny measurements and getting everything under 10 thousandths of an inch and fun stuff like that. <laughs> well, right, right. And it's, you know, it's even like when, when I dial in a barrel, I, I dial it into the nearest one ten thousandths of an inch. Uh, so, you know, so when you're cutting your chamber, the chamber's got to be, you know, as perfect to the bore as you could possibly make it. The crowding of the muzzle's got to be perfect. And so the closer you can get those tolerances to zero, the better off you are. Yeah, absolutely. And in the rifle build series that you have available on uh, DVD, uh, I was really impressed with your ability to do that and the time it takes you to dial that in. But not only that, you will do that multiple times when you when you work on the barrel because you'll flip it around and work on the muzzle end and then work on the, the chamber end as well. So I think you do, I think you do some great work in there. I can tell that you have a real passion for it and you're very, you're very detail oriented on them. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. No, it's, uh, you know, and sometimes even when I, like when I'm cutting, uh, cutting the tin into run a muzzle brake on or something like that, you know, I'll get everything checked up, dial it down to the nearest one ten thousands. Uh, I'll take a couple of pass cuts and I'll put the indicating rod back in there because you're, you're going to start inducing heat into the, into the barrel. And I'm not saying it's hot, but you're going to induce heat and, and you can have tool deflection and all kinds of stuff that come into play. So there are times I'll dial, I, I can dial a barrel in on the same cut several times. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so how long have you been into gunsmithing at this point? Um, most probably about 15 years, uh, but 15 years more as a hobbyist doing it for myself or some friends. Okay. Um, but actually doing it 
you know, licensed with an FFL, you know, taken in customers' work, stuff like that in a couple of years now. Yeah, that's awesome. And I I know one of the companies I, I work with is Uinta Precision, and they started off as machinists, and they were machinists forever, and then they were they would do it on the hobby on the side, and then finally they decided it. All right, let's start making precision rifles. So it seems like that's a pretty common stories. People work on their own for a long time, get make the mistakes on their own stuff, and then they're able to uh, step it up to the next level and make something quality for customers. Right. You know, the other thing too is gunsmiths are actually kind of becoming a dying breed. Um, one of the guys I I worked with a little bit, he's probably 70, 72 now. He's getting ready to hang it up. There's another guy in town. He's He's getting up there. He's going to be retiring from it, not doing it anymore. So there's not a lot of options um, to go anywhere locally without sending your stuff off. And I thought, well, I mean, I know how to do this stuff, so why don't I just do it uh, on a, you know, on a business level? Yeah, and I think that's a that was definitely a good move for you, especially with uh, the precision rifle things growing like it really is. A lot of people are getting in the competition side, and then they realize, you know what? Maybe I do want a custom rifle. It takes me to the next step above that factory rifle. Or even if you started out with a factory rifle and you've burned through the barrel on your 6.5 Creedmoor and it's time to rebarrel it, you're going to need a gunsmith. So I think it's not a bad move for you out there to step up and do that for them. Yeah, and it's been, uh, you know, it's been busy. I'm, I'm kind of surprised at how busy it's got. We've got, you know, I've got a couple sitting here, uh, well, just beside me right now that, that I'm working on. And, and uh you know, I've got, I get emails, literally I get emails every day. Um, people saying, oh, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Yeah, I can yeah, certainly do all that stuff. And then, you know, I'm, I'm a couple months out right now, easy, probably two months uh, backlog right now for scheduling. So it's, uh, it's been, you know, I'll take on small projects in between. Uh, I, I do the, I build the, uh, the fire form party uh, case cages. Okay, and cool. I, I probably get, two or three people mailing me cases every week and they just take me, you know, 15, 20 minutes to knock them out real quick, uh, you know, and then mail them back. So I'll take on small projects, but any, any of the big rifle projects, I'm a couple months out now. Yeah, that's really cool. And that's an interesting service that you offer there. I think that's really awesome. You're doing those, uh, Hornady cases. So if maybe if the audience is unfamiliar, you've got a Hornady sells an overall length, uh, test tool where you thread it into a, piece of brass and Hornady will sell you say a 6.5 Creedmoor piece of brass. Well, Kurt will take one that's fire formed to your chamber, which will give you the like perfect headspace set to your chamber. And then you put a bullet through it and it will, uh, it will read the distance for the, from the base of the case to the bullet touching the lands. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And because when you're, when you're the one, there's a misconception on these, on these gauges here. And that is, when you're actually measuring this, you're actually measuring from the shoulder to the lands. A lot of people think that you're measuring from the base of the case, which you're, I mean, you, you, in a sense you are, but when you fire form a case into that specific chamber, that shoulder moves forward. And anytime it moves forward, the, the, the measurement is actually from the shoulder to the lands. So you can get a lot a lot more accurate measurement if you have one that's been fire formed to your specific uh, rifle that you're shooting. Yeah. And so for anyone listening to this podcast, just on the audio form on the YouTube uh, video, which can be found on the West desert shooter channel under the muzzle blast podcast playlist, uh, Kurt's here and he's actually showing us this tool. And what he's saying is, is the shoulder of that case is what contacts the rifling when you push it into the chamber. 
and then your bullet gets pushed out from there. So what stops your brass from moving forward is actually the shoulder. So if you don't have the fireform piece of brass to your chamber, you're, you're going to end up with a little bit shorter measurement uh, potentially than what, uh, right, what am I trying to say? Than what Hornady would give you. Right, right. Yeah, because the the cases you purchase from Hornady are uh, are a Sammy spec case, never been fired. So you know, and every that's another thing, probably a good thing to talk about too is every chamber is different. Um, you know, you could have a Manson reamer, a PTG reamer, you know, Clyde. There's a bunch of reamers out there, and they all ream just ever so slightly different. And so you know, you could take you could have three different. Uh, uh, chambers cut with three different tools and same loads in each one fire them and you'll find that the shoulder measurement to the base of the case is actually different across each one so it's uh by as much as about six thousandths uh, which doesn't sound like a lot but it, it actually is a lot yeah and i've got a kid who's got a UN to precision that's trying to follow some of my load development i've done and i'm trying to explain to him that same concept that not every rifle is the same even if they're produced from the same place uh they're it's going to be hard to take my exact pet load that my rifle absolutely loves and get his to shoot have it shoot exactly the same it'd probably like it too but well uh, you know, even, since we're talking about chambers, even the bore of a rifle, so I've got the, this PTG indicating rod here, and it has a little bushing here on the tip, and then I've got a whole set of bushings. Uh, I've got nine different bushings for this. This happens to be uh, 6.5, I believe. Um, this bushing here is uh, 0.2562, and I think the bushings start at like uh, 0.2554 and go up to like 0.2568 or something like that. So it's not a lot. We're talking about the nearest, you know, one ten thousands uh, and even halves based on these bushings. When when my son and I ordered the barrels, we got two barrels built side by side, put in the same box, sent at the same time, and the bore was different on both barrels. Not by a lot, but uh, one bushing that would fit in my barrel wouldn't fit in his. It was too tight. So I had to switch those bushings out, which isn't a bad thing. It, it doesn't uh, doesn't affect necessarily the shooting, but uh, but there is a difference there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that those little tiny differences, I've I've always kind of wondered if that ever equated to uh, muzzle velocity difference. So like say a Ruger American 6.5 Creedmoor maybe has a little more forgiving bore in it than maybe the rifle I had that had a tighter bore, because it seems like I'm able to get pretty high velocities it seems like pretty easily compared to other people. And I've wondered if it's because maybe my bore is either smaller and creates more pressure and shoots faster or it's bigger, creates less pressure and it's easier to exit the muzzle. I don't know if I'm up in the night, but it's just something I've thought about. Yeah, no, it's uh, you, you will get uh, velocity changes based on, on the, on the bore diameter. You know, if, if you, if, especially like if you have a, a worn out barrel, one that's been shot out, the bore over time begins to erode, becomes larger in diameter. And you can start getting gases that escape around the bullet. Um, you can have some bores that are extremely tight and you can get pressure spikes. Um, you know, if, if you had a, a barrel that you've been loading a certain load for, you know, whatever, 40 grains of, of a certain powder, and then you put a new barrel on there, all of a sudden that, that 40, that same 40 grains, now you're seeing a pressure spike. You know, especially when you're up toward the top end of the acceptable charge weights. So yeah, it's a, it can really play a big, a, a, can make a big difference. 
Well, that's awesome, man. Uh, do you want to quick quickly touch on maybe some of the most common questions you get about your gunsmithing, like when people ask you what you're able to do? Uh, just kind of throw those out there here so people can understand some of the more common questions you get asked. Well, I get a lot of questions. Um, <clears throat> some of the questions that people ask me if I can do that I don't do, and that is, uh, you know, they want me to flute a barrel. I don't do fluting on barrels. Um, I don't, uh, I don't flute bolts. I have technically, I have the ability to, um, it's just not something I want to get into, but what I do mostly is I true actions, I true bolts, I true, you know, um, I, 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 I chamber barrels, I contour barrels, I thread, I do a lot of muzzle brake work. Um, just uh, do a lot of glass bedding. Um, in fact, I've got a project here right now that, uh, that I'm work, just getting ready to. This is a McMillan stock here. And I had to do, I had to custom cut an inlay in this uh, because the customer wanted a, a, a different bottom metal in this here. So it's not the one that McMillan recommended. So we bought this. So I had to inlet that. So I do some inletting work, uh, glass bedding work, scope mounting, uh, ring lapping, um, just a, a lot of stuff, but not nothing too, uh, nothing too crazy with the, with the fancy stuff about, you know, I, Oh, can you, can you cut a bunch of cool designs in my, in my Glock slide? No. <laughs> yeah. Don't get into the milling. <laughs> Send it off to somebody else. I'm, I don't. Uh, uh, I don't. I, I don't have the tooling to do some of that stuff, and I and the investment. Uh, yeah, it, it would it would take me years for that to pay back. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and kind of round this up and close it out. Why don't Why don't we run through the list of uh, places where people can find you at, uh, and basically what you offer in those different places? So, I mean, I'll let you go from there, man. I know. You're, you're involved in a lot of projects. All right. So uh, currently you can find me at bondprecision.com. Um, that's my website. Now, uh, you probably don't even know this, but I'm actually switching over 100% to the Reloaders Network. Okay, cool. Now, if, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the domain name of Bond Precision. So when you type in bondprecision.com, it's going to redirect you over to the Reloaders Network. So it'll be Bond Precision. Um, on the Reloaders Network, and I'm going to have my my, my own uh, website hosted there. And the reason for that is just simply uh, uh, for well, it was financial reasons. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm able to use the uh, the Reloaders Network store. Of course, you can find me on the, the main Reloaders Network at ReloadersNetwork.com. You can find me on YouTube by just typing in Bond Precision. Um, and uh, that's pretty much my platform right now that I, that I really focus on. And, uh, for people who might not know the reloaders network is a central hub where all the different authors uh, of gun channels are basically centralized and you can find all their content. And if you go to the reloaders network store, Kurt actually has some offerings there as well on a, uh, a brand new reloading DVD that you just released, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So that's, uh, that that's available now. It's, uh, it's available for download. Uh, so it's just a, just a downloadable file. It's about an hour and a half long. Everybody's uh, saying they're able to download it in about five minutes is kind of the average right now. So it's actually, the download speeds are great. Pretty happy with that. The, um, um, we're, we're probably going to be putting the, the Savage Rifle Build series up for sale as well at the Reloaders Network. However, 
Um, I want to go. I want to pull that uh, file back in and do a little bit more editing uh, on the coloring, the, the kind of the white balance. Try to get just make it look a little bit nicer. Okay, and I've seen both of those videos, uh, both the precision rifle build and then the precision rifle reloading, and it's really impressive. It's full of knowledge. I learned stuff in both of them, and I mean. Obviously, I'm not a gunsmith, so I'm going to learn a lot about the gunsmithing videos, but I've been reloading now for a while and talking directly with Kurt about reloading with all the funny questions I come up with, and uh, I still was learning things when I was watching that, so he does a great job. It's really worth checking out, and I highly suggest it. It's absolutely worth the couple bucks that he's asking for it. You're going to get a lot of value out of what, what, out of what he's asking for it there. Yeah. Uh, if we're able to pull in the, uh, the rifle build DVD, over there, which will also become a download. Um, currently, that sells for forty bucks, and but if we're able to just offer it to people for a download, that price is going to go way down because I don't have to, you know, buy the CDs, have them burn, label them. Get, there's there's just expense there, so I'm hoping to get the price down on that a little bit uh, for folks and and uh, sell a few more. That'd be great because it really, you know, one thing about our business here is a hundred percent, and I literally mean a hundred hundred percent of what we make. We put right back into the business. We purchase products for uh, YouTube reviews. So we're trying really hard to just get as much information out to all the viewers uh, for just good content and very honest content, too. If, if something I, I just literally, uh, not to take up too much more time here, but we just got a spotting scope sent to us the other day. And, and I kind of have a standard form that I send out to companies who say they want me to review something. And if it's no good, you'll never see a video. And that just happens to be a spotting scope that you'll never see. So, yeah, and I, I think that's really awesome how you're upfront about that. And I, I like that you never hear just BS about something that doesn't work. Like there's a few products that I push on my channel, but I mentioned it in one of my most recent videos is like, I, I'm not going to promote crap especially because I, I'm using it and I'm not going to use crap when there's quality components available and that's that's something that I try and convey. So if I'm if I'm pushing something, it's because I think it works and I, I really like that. And I like that about your channel as well. Uh, real quick on that download on the Reloaders Network, I downloaded it on my phone and I was able to watch the whole thing off of my phone and there wasn't even download time. It basically was just, it was like a YouTube video. It just loaded as it went and I just played it straight through and it worked it was worked really awesome it was really easy to get it to work yeah streaming yeah so well cool man i think we're gonna wrap that up uh yeah we've been able to talk about where people are able to find bomb precision um if they have any questions is there an email you might be able to answer questions on yeah it's uh it's von precision at at uh well if you if you just go to von precision.com there's a there's a quick little uh, contact us form you can fill out um you know you can throw all your questions or, you know, if you're looking for pricing or whatever, throw it all in there. Uh, as soon as you submit that, I get a notification and I try to respond to people. I, I do try very hard to respond daily to that um, okay. unless I'm just really busy and it might be two days, but that's uh, rarely the case. Well, awesome, man. I want to extend a huge thank you for coming on the first episode of the Muzzle Blast podcast. It's been awesome talking with you. I've learned a whole lot in this conversation and I've, I've had a few good questions that I wanted to ask about, like, that VLD seating depth and stuff like that. Uh, the hunting was a whole bunch of fun to talk about. So I greatly appreciate your time. I know you're a busy guy with all the projects you've got going on. So one more time, thanks, Kurt. I really appreciate you coming on. And thanks to everybody for listening here. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, my, it's my first podcast, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too, man. So this has all been good. Uh, 
Well, thanks so much, Kurt, and we will talk to you later. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Muzzle Blast podcast. We will see you guys in episode two. All right. Well, hey, thanks, everyone, for listening to that. I really appreciate you guys listening to the first episode. Um, be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. You can find me on Instagram as West Desert Shooter. Uh, no underscores or spaces. Really simple. I'm on the Reloaders Network as well. We discussed that. And uh, those should be the main places where you're able to find me. If you want to help support the show, I have an Amazon affiliate link that uh, you can use. It'll be in the description of my YouTube channels. Uh, any video I've posted on YouTube, you can find my Amazon links there, and that makes a big difference, as well as just watching, liking, and commenting on videos. So thanks for all the support, guys. Look forward to doing more of these. It's been a whole lot of fun, and uh, can't wait to improve the next one. So we'll see you guys next time, and we'll catch you in episode two.